This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. During the Cassini mission at Saturn and the upcoming JUICE mission at Jupiter, the magnetic fields of icy moons are a key focus of study. This episode, we're speaking to planetary scientist Professor Michelle Doherty about why magnetic fields are important and what they can tell us about the prospect for life beyond Earth. My name is Professor Michelle Doherty. I am head of department at Imperial College for physics at the moment, and I'm a planetary scientist. We build magnetometer instruments that fly on outer planetary missions, and I was involved in the Cassini mission to Saturn and its moons, and I'm now involved in the JUICE mission to Jupiter and its moons. Fantastic. Well, thanks very much for joining me in the podcast today and speaking to me. Now, we, we have to sort of mention at the start, the reason our paths have crossed is because at the time of recording, you're, you're due to receive the uh, Vicarian Medal from... From the Royal Society, which is a, as I understand, it's a physical sciences award from the Royal Society. Yeah, yeah I was flabbergasted. I didn't know I'd been put forward <laughs> for it. But for me, I think it's just a testament to the fantastic people that I've worked with over the years. The work that I do is very collaborative. I couldn't do the kind of science I do without really good collaborations. Most of them are international. And just looking back over the over the years, I've worked with and continue to work with great people so for me it's um i i i'm i'm really chuffed that i've got it but it's really a testament to the people that i've worked with over the years i think and in in terms of your work over the years you seem to have spent the majority of your career studying magnetic fields and instruments that study magnetic fields yes what can we learn from magnetic fields and specifically what can we learn from studying magnetic fields across the solar system okay sure um I'll take a step back, if I may. I didn't start off as a physicist. I was actually, I, I went to an all-girls school in South Africa, which didn't do science. and But I was very good at maths, and the local university took a chance on me and said, oh, you can do a BSc. Um, <laughs> and the first couple of years were very difficult because I didn't know any physics and chemistry at all. Uh, and I remember I'd go home every evening, and my dad was an engineer, and he'd go through the physics and chemistry lectures with me. I eventually caught up, but I, in fact, got a PhD in applied maths. And the first three years of my career after my PhD were really focused on theory-based problems. And it was only when I came to Imperial to work with David Southwood on um, some theory um, that he said to me, oh, do you want to spend a day a week putting a magnetic field model together for Jupiter? Because there was a spacecraft called Ulysses that was going to Jupiter. And I didn't know anything about magnetic fields or how you put models together, but it sounded interesting. So I said, yes. Um, And that was a start of the change for me. So I've now become a planetary scientist, essentially. But what we do at Imperial is we build magnetic field instruments, and they're important for 
two main reasons. One of them is to be able to understand the environment in outer space, you need to understand the magnetic field because it governs the behavior of the plasma and the particles. But I think something that that has become much more high profile in the last 20, 25 years or so is that you can use the magnetic field to measure outside planetary bodies to actually almost see inside them and work out what's going on inside. So it allows you to get an understanding of the internal structure, how the magnetic field is generated, but also, and this is what the Galileo spacecraft found at Jupiter's moons and with Cassini, we found at Saturn's moons, it is allows you to measure electrical currents that flow in liquid water oceans under the surface. And so from Cassini days, my focus has really been now on, on, on using the magnetic field to understand the internal structure of different planetary bodies. Sorry, that was a very long answer, but I think I got there in the end. Yeah, no, that's great. So is it safe to say that without studying magnetic fields, we might not have known about the subsurface oceans on the icy moons around Saturn and Jupiter? Was that how we actually discovered them? It was how we discovered them. You can also use gravity measurements to, as well as as well as modeling to um, describe uh, the internal structure of bodies as well. So, for example, at Cassini's moon Titan, it was gravity observations that have said that there's a liquid water ocean under the surface because we we didn't get close enough to be able to measure induction signals with our instrument. But for th- three of the Galilean satellites, so Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto, which is the focus of JUICE, the Galileo magnetometer measured signatures they didn't quite understand, and the way to model them was that there was this liquid water ocean under the surface. So those were really important discoveries that were made by that team. And then my team made the discovery of this outgassing of water vapor from Saturn's moon Enceladus, and that was that was measurements we made outside of the of the moon. Um, what we found is we had two close flybys. Well, no, yeah, we had two close flybys of Enceladus early on in the Cassini mission, and we saw some strange signals in the data. Didn't quite understand them, but one way to model them was if we had an atmosphere covering the entire surface of Enceladus, because what happens is the upper regions of the atmosphere become ionized, but like we have on the Earth, and that stops the magnetic field of Saturn or of the solar wind penetrating down through the atmosphere. And that's what we saw. And that's when I said to JPL, can we go close? Because we thought we were seeing an atmosphere. Turns out it wasn't an atmosphere. It was outgassing of water vapor from the South Pole. So the magnetic field is crucial to understand the environment outside, but also to make inferences about what's going on inside as well. Yeah. So is there really that leeway during a mission like Cassini? Someone like me who doesn't really understand how it goes might think that everything's scheduled, but at certain points, can you sort of go... It was "Ah, scheduled. ah, ah." Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it actually was scheduled. So you've got got to have lots of patience to be involved in interplanetary missions. It takes... For Cassini, it took us six and a half years to get to Saturn. For JUICE, it's taking seven and a half years. But um, for the Cassini mission, originally the mission was planned to be four years in duration. And we spent the six and a half years it took us to get there, planning every single second of those four years. We had interminable teleconferences where all the teams were online and 
you know, teams are saying, I really need this piece of data. I need to point the spacecraft this way. So we did that. But at the, a number of us asked the question, what happens if we make a discovery? Can we change it? And, the, and NASA and the JPL project team said yes. And so this was the first test. Took a bit of persuasion, but they agreed. Um, and I must confess, I didn't sleep for two or three nights before that close flyby, because if I hadn't, if we hadn't found anything, who would have ever believed anything I said again? <laughs> um, but we needed to use some fuel to change the trajectory. And the reason that it took a bit of um, discussion and persuasion is that it meant that on that particular flyby, all the plans were out of the window and we had to start from scratch. Um, but yes, we can make changes as long as we've got the fuel to actually do it, because you need fuel to be able to change the trajectory of the spacecraft. And is is there jostling with other with other science teams and other instruments to say, no, no, we we want that time, you know? Yes, yes, and and in fact, for me, that was it was really interesting to watch it in action for the six and a half years of planning that we did. All of the teams to begin with were really protective of their data. Theirs was the most important data. But as we got to know each other's science and we got to know each other, we would then say, okay, if I have this piece of time, can you, you, you know, would it, would it help you if you had that, that piece of time? And, and so we then began to work together as a team because there were 11 different instruments on board and each of them thought their data was the most important, but we got to know each other. And I think for me also the Enceladus discovery was when we came together as a cohesive team because to understand what we were seeing, we needed to put all of the data together. And that's when we began to work together really well. A lot has been said about the Cassini mission and the discoveries at Enceladus in the context of the search for life in, in the solar system. I was, yes. I was wondering to get your, your uh, thoughts on that. So for me, I think that in the last 25 to 30 years or so, planetary scientists have realized that if we're searching for liquid water, which is one of the ingredients that we need for life to be able to form. Previous to the last 30 years, the focus has been on the planets close to the sun. Because, you know, if you're looking for liquid water, if you're going to find it on the surface, you have to be close to the sun, because otherwise it's going to freeze and become ice. And it was the Galileo observations of Jupiter's moons followed by the Cassini observations of Saturn's moons that confirmed that you can be, excuse me, beyond the snow line. So as you're moving away from the sun, there's a distance where if you have liquid water on the surface, it becomes ice. But you can go beyond that and you can still find liquid water, but it's underneath the surface. And now there's a real focus on the moons in the outer solar system, you know, three of Jupiter's moons, which is why we've got juice. At least two of Saturn's moons, Enceladus and Titan. Maybe there are others. And there's also a little bit of uh, focus now on the moons and the real outer solar system, so Uranus and Neptune as well. And I, I think for me, you know, there's, there's, there's a real focus, Juice. So Juice is going to be understanding whether three of the moons of Jupiter have the potential for life to form. But the other thing Juice is going to do is it's going to study Ganymede very well. And we think, well, Ganymede is a water world body, and we think there are lots of water worlds beyond our solar system orbiting around exoplanets. And so it's essentially getting an understanding of a new type of a new type of planetary body. 
That's incredible. So could what we learn at Juice be then be applied to exoplanet exoplanetary science? I mean, yeah, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, no, absolutely. Yeah, and and so do you sort of foresee a a time when we could even study exomoons, for example, like the way we're studying the moons of our solar system? Yes, I think it's way in the future. I certainly yeah. won't be around to be able to do that. But I think when we made the case to the European Space Agency for JUICE to be the first large class mission, I think if the only case that we had made was we'd be searching for potential habitability, that would have been an important case to make. But the fact that we're looking at a new type of planetary body on top of that, I think was crucial. I think that's what swayed it in the way of JUICE. Huh? What do you hope the JUICE mission will uncover? What, what do you expect to see even? I've been asked that question a couple of times recently, actually, and my and my answer is is always the same. So, so at Europa, Ganymede and Callisto, we want to confirm, well, at Ganymede and Callisto, we want to confirm there is a liquid water ocean and understand its characteristics, how deep is it, what its salt content is. And at Ganymede in particular, because we're going into orbit, we want to understand its internal structure. But for me, what really excites me is what we don't know we're going to find. So with Cassini, you know, we had all these science objectives and we met them all, but we weren't expecting to find a water vapor plume at Enceladus, and that changed the focus of the mission after that. So I'm really excited about what we're going to do with JUICE. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, what else are we going to discover that we don't actually know yet? That's what excites me as well. And can the study of magnetic fields and the magnetometer instruments, can they actually contribute to the to the detection of microbial life, or is that a different branch? Yeah, no, that's a different branch. We've got in, we've got um, other instruments on board, Juice that will allow us to do that. So we've got remote sensing instruments that will be able to uh, work out what's on the surface. If there's a plume at Europa, we might fly through the plume. And some of the some of the uh, instruments can actually almost taste what's in the plume. What the magnetometer can do, though, and what that's what we, one of the things we did at Enceladus is. So let me take a step back. At, at Enceladus, what we found is not only was there this bending of the magnetic field around Enceladus, which made us think there was an atmosphere, but we saw there was a very large increase in water group ions. And the reason we were able to say that is there was a lot of noise in our data. And that noise was generated by wave activity. And we can work out what molecules were generating that wave. So we can we can get an understanding about what is in the environment, but we can't measure what's on the surface. So if there's organic material in the plume, and if it's generating a wave activity, we might be able to see that in the magnetic field. But that's not a real focus for us. That's why it's so important on JUICE to have this suite of instruments that's going to be able to put all of their data sets together. It's going to be so cool. But sort of when you think about JUICE and Europa Clipper and then what Juno is doing at Jupiter itself. Yes. Do you think we're overdue a mission to go back to Saturn and <laughs> Saturn's moons? Yeah, I'm I'm always torn, you know, because you can only do one of these big ones at a time, essentially. But we, we do have a mission going back to Saturn. It's called Dragonfly. It's a NASA mission, and its focus is Titan. And I I, can't, I don't know the, all the all the details of the mission, but I think there's going to be an orbiter, 
And then there's going to be um, a probe that actually travels down and flies in the atmosphere and flies over the surface. So there is a follow-on mission. A lot of people want to go back to Enceladus, as do I. But Enceladus is really difficult to get into orbit around because its gravitational field is so small that you need a huge amount of fuel to be able to go into orbit. So, you know, there, there are lots of proposals being put together for different missions to go back to Saturn. And I would very much expect something will follow on from Dragonfly. But then people are thinking, oh, we need to go to Uranus and Neptune as well. So there's lots of competition out there. <laughs> yeah, that was actually going to be my next question. Would you personally like to see a mission to the ice giants? I mean, I think I'd heard of a mission that was proposed called Trident that was going to look at Triton, but yes. I'm, not, I'm not sure if, if that ever made it through to, to the official stage, but would, would you like to see a mission like that? Yes, I would. And it didn't make it through to the official stage. We were on the team. We were going to build the magnetometer for, tri for Trident, but um, in the in the New Horizons call that was two or three years ago, uh, there were two Venus, two Venus missions that were chosen instead. And now there's, there will be a delay to get to Neptune because the planets aren't in alignment. If there was going to be a mission going to Neptune and get there in our lifetimes, it needed to be launched, I think, within the next two or three years. And so I think now the focus is moving on to Uranus. There's discussions within the US, and I was actually at a conference in LA last month talking about the kind of measurements we'd want to make if we had a spacecraft go to Uranus and the kind of science that we want to do. But I will probably be sitting in the shade drinking a gin and tonic and telling people how they should do it by the time we get to Uranus. So. <laughs> what about the inner planets in terms of studying magnetic fields? I mean, what about the phosphine discovery of Venus and things like that? Are there, are there interesting things to discover at Mercury and Venus and Mars? Yes. So at, at Mercury, um, we had the, the NASA messenger spacecraft that orbited Mercury, and we've got the ESA Bepi Colombo mission that's on its way to Mercury now. And I'm on the the magnetometer team for that. I'm not the PI, but I'm one, I'm on the team. Venus doesn't have a magnetic field because it orbits so rotates so slowly on its axis. I think its rotation period is 240 days. So that means that there isn't a dynamo field generated in the interior. And Mars has got, we're almost certain it had a dynamo field previously in its history. It's now died, and there are fossil fields on the surface. And so there have been magnetometer instruments on all of these on all of these missions. I've never worked on an inner on an inner planet, and so Mercury is going to be new for me. <laughs> Just to come back to you, Juice, actually, what do you do in the meantime? Yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's a very good question. <laughs> well, we wait for it to arrive. So we will do the same thing that we did on Cassini. And that was prepare and plan the observations that we're going to make. But my postdocs and PhD students are going to go back to the previous Jupiter data set, run through them all again, look at the data, understand the data, get our heads in the right mind space, essentially. On Cassini, when we did that, we went back to the Pioneer and the Voyager data set. We found something new in the data that no one had seen before. So it's always good to have an, a new eye on data. But we've got a huge around, amount of preparation that we need to do. One of the things that keeps me awake at night 
is how we're going to tease out the very small induction signals coming from the ocean at Ganymede. The complication at Ganymede is you've got different mag you've got different magnetic fields that are all adding together. We've got the background magnetic field of Jupiter, it's changing all the time. We've got the plasma currents that flow around Ganymede and generate a magnetic field that we need to be able to model. We've got the internal dynamo field at Ganymede. Ganymede's the only moon in the solar system that has its own internal dynamo field. And those are all large fields and they're changing. Except, no, sorry, the dynamo field isn't changing. That's static. And then on top of that, you've got these tiny little induction signals. They're going to tell us about the ocean. So the way I think about it, it's like trying to find needles in a haystack and they're changing shape and color all the time. The instrument we built can do it, but we need to have the software in place and the models in place. So when we get the data, we can start separating them out. So seven and a half years should be enough time for us to be ready. <laughs> yeah, and I hear lots of more and more. It seems these days lots more about sort of artificial intelligence helping astronomers and planetary scientists and cosmologists even sort of yes. to actually eke out data from noise. We can only we we could only use that kind of route once we actually understand what we're seeing, and so that might be helpful right at the end of the mission. But to begin with, we're going to need to do it in stages. So we're going to have to understand first the background field at Jupiter, then the plasma currents, and then the dynamo field of Ganymede. And once we've got all of those modelled, then we can tease out those tiny signals. So I'm sure we'll be fine. But we need to work really hard to be ready. It's really exciting, though, isn't it, when you think about it? I mean, obviously, you think about it a lot. But <laughs> the uh, prospect that juice might might actually lead to the discovery of life beyond Earth, it's pretty incredible, isn't it? Yes, it is. But juice will not discover life. Juice will confirm whether the ingredients are there for life to form. Yeah. And, and I was always very careful. You know, because I didn't want to overpromise. So when we presented to the European Space Agency the plan for juice, I told the team beforehand that we mustn't mention life. We can talk about potential habitability, but we're, we're not finding life. We're going to confirm if the ingredients are there for life to form. And it's a, it's a, it's a very fine line between those two, I think. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, uh, Michelle, thanks very much for speaking to me today. Of and you know, good luck with the juice mission. Thank you know, you. it's going to be really, really excited to, to see what happens. And congratulations on being awarded the Bakerian Medal. And thank you uh, very yeah, much. Hope to speak to you again soon. Okay. Take care, Ian. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Radio Astronomy Podcast. Do be sure to subscribe to get all of the latest astronomy news and stargazing tips. And we hope to see you here next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify. Spotify.